Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Bill Werner explains Governor Dayton's supplemental budget, Mike Grimm has a preview of the Twins in spring training, and I chat with Minnesota-raised star of the stage, Laura Osnes, about the Spotlight Education Program. But first, this week the Department of Public Safety reported at least seven people in northern Minnesota have died from suspected heroin overdoses. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. The recent wave of heroin overdose deaths and hospitalizations across northern Minnesota prompted authorities to team up and hold a news conference in Bemidji to encourage the public to come forward if they have any information on who is dealing this deadly heroin. Sue Burgraff is BCA special agent in charge. We're here today because people are dying and we need your help to try and stop it. Over the past few weeks, Several northern Minnesota communities have seen suspected cluster heroin overdoses. These are groups of overdoses in a small area in a small time frame. We've ident- excuse me, identified recent overdoses in Virginia, Cass Lake, Mille Lacs County, Beltrami County, Red Lake, Bemidji, Detroit Lakes, Moorhead, Dilworth, Marble, Hibbing, and more. Some of these communities have seen multiple overdoses. In many cases, first responders have successfully treated victims with Narcon. But seven people have died, and we suspect there are more. We believe that in some of these cases, heroin was laced with additional narcotics making them even more deadly. The Bureau of Criminal Apprehension is reaching out to Minnesota law enforcement through the Minnesota Fusion Center to gather information about these overdoses and the deaths in their jurisdictions so that we can better understand the breadth of this rash of overdoses. BCA narcotics agents are working with local law enforcement agencies to try to identify the sources of these drugs. BCA agents and our partner agencies are conducting criminal investigations into each of these cases. We're treating these overdose deaths as homicide investigations. And we, when we find those drug dealers, we intend to charge them with third degree murder. Dismissing heroin as a big city issue or that of a longtime drug user is a big mistake. We see heroin in every economic background, and every type of community. This is a problem that is getting worse, and with today's more pure heroin, getting deadlier. James Madigan is with Adults and Teen Challenge. Teen Challenge has a pretty wide array of programs statewide, all the way down in Rochester, all the way up to Duluth, and then in Minneapolis and Brainerd as well. Mainly what we do is is we're a long-term faith-based treatment program, but we have uh, licensed programs across the state. We work with teenagers and adults. And the the heroin epidemic, which it's been called, which I, I completely agree with, is something that we've been seeing, you know, on a daily basis for a few years now. I looked at, at some numbers this morning as I was uh, 
walking out of my office and in 2010, 4% of our clients were in there for heroin use. You know, that's not to exclude, you know, opiate pain pills, you know, and other kinds of, <coughs> of opioids out there. So about 4%. And then today I looked at our actual clients that are in the program um, currently and it was 30% of them are in there for heroin use. And then on top of that is the, the opiate pain meds and um, all the other painkillers that are included as well. So, you know, the, the numbers don't lie. You know, something is, is definitely changing. Um, what we noticed is, is about 50% of, of these people that are on the heroin now um, reported that they started with prescription pain meds. And uh, not only did they start with prescription pain meds, but 32% of those were high school students the first time they tried it. So these people were under 18 years old when they first got their hands on, on opiates. And then what we noticed is the, the pain pills are hard to find and they're expensive. And so now there's all this cheap heroin being flooded into you know, central Minnesota and northern Minnesota and that's what they're, they're all gravitating towards. And this stuff is potent and, and deadly. And you don't know from one day to the next what the potency is going to be. So one day you can do this much and be fine, and the next day you do the same amount, and, and all of a sudden your, your um, you know, respiratory system's being affected, and you end up overdosing. Um, Teen Challenge, like I said, has a wide array of programs, and, and we want to be a resource. A long-term faith-based program isn't always, you know, what someone needs, and, and that's why we have some outpatient and some short-term, and Teen Challenge isn't always a fit, but we can definitely point you in the right direction and get you some, some uh, ways to find help for someone you know. So do not hesitate to give us a call. Again, anyone with information in the recent spike of suspected heroin-related deaths is encouraged to contact their local authorities. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. More Minnesota Matters after this. As a young teenage boy, I didn't even know what autism was. How do you even spell that? A few years later, I heard that a friend's cousin's son had been diagnosed with autism. I still wasn't sure what that really meant. When I went to college, my roommate's brother had autism. When I moved to the city for work, my best friend called me and told me his son had been diagnosed with autism. We were both in shock. I still remember the day I walked into the house and saw that look on my wife's face. I knew something was wrong. I'll never forget how I felt when she said, our son has autism. Autism is getting closer to home. Today, one in 110 children is diagnosed with autism. That's a 600% increase in the last 20 years. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. $25 million to slightly expand state-paid preschool in Minnesota, expanding the child care tax credit, $100 million to improve broadband internet access, and $100 million to help close the economic gap between white Minnesotans and Minnesotans of color. Those are among major features of the supplemental budget proposal Governor Mark Dayton unveiled this week. MNN's Bill Werner has been covering it. And Bill, what exactly is a supplemental budget? 
Well, Scott, governors make their full budget proposals in odd-numbered years, and then they make adjustments based on subsequent economic forecasts. In this case, the $1.2 billion surplus that the state was expecting dropped to $900 million, and Dayton had to scale back proposed spending in some areas. One notable example, despite making it one of his top priorities, the governor reduced his funding request for pre-kindergarten to a mere $25 million increase, which would add only 3,700 four-year-olds to the program. I've had to, to delay it and I've had to condition it on the economic uh, forecast uh, a year from now. And if the resources are available, uh, we have that greater degree of economic certainty, I will absolutely make it a, my top priority and, and, and press for it. Governor Mark Dayton. And what do Republicans think about a funding increase for pre-kindergarten? Here's House Majority Leader Joyce Pepin. We increased that budget by 74% last year. We put 74% more dollars, over $100 million, into early education for the biennium. And now I think there's there's an additional re request of another $25 million. And so, you know, we look at the biennium and, and do budgeting decisions based on that. So a little surprised that there's so many additional requests for dollars when when really our goal is to provide tax relief. We feel we feel Minnesotans have been taxed enough, and we would really prefer those dollars to go to tax relief. That's House Republican Majority Leader Joyce Pepin. Governor Dayton held firm in some areas, though, despite the shrinking budget surplus. He wants $100 million to improve broadband Internet access, particularly in greater Minnesota. Grossly inadequate amount of money was provided in the last legislative session by the House Republicans, and, and if it hadn't been for the Senate, it would have been nothing at all. And then they go around and tell their, their uh, constituents, well, apply for, for broadband. We provided $10 million for broadband when they know that's grossly inadequate for the scope of the need. But uh, you talk about equal opportunity in greater Minnesota, uh, you know, broadband is just essential. So, you know, all the lip service given to the needs of greater Minnesota better be backed up with some really serious money for broadband expansion. Governor Dayton, House Speaker Kurt Dowd, though, leery of spending $100 million on broadband access. We're concerned about needing some reform language with any additional spending. Um, our concern the last time around was that, uh, that we were simply kind of displacing federal dollars, and, and that's exactly what happened with the, with the state grant dollars the last time. Uh, they were all spent in areas that the federal dollars would have uh, expanded or paid for anyways. Um, and, and the great news is for Minnesotans around the state, there's more money being spent on broadband expansion in the state of Minnesota right now than ever before. You have the federal uh, grant money that's coming in um, and the private investment by these companies uh, in addition uh, to, the, to the state grant dollars. So uh, we want to make sure that the state grant dollars that we spend on broadband are, are supplementing or leveraging uh, federal or private investments and not, not supplanting them. Tax cuts in the governor's proposal are not nearly as large as Republicans want. House Speaker Kurt Dowd says the state should give Minnesotans some of their money back. This is an economy that really hasn't, uh, uh, Minnesota families haven't felt the full recovery of this economy. They're not feeling a surplus in their own family budgets. And, you know, for the, for the governor to come out, rather than, than propose to give them uh, some money and some, uh, some, some of their money back, some relief in their own family budgets, um, what he's doing is proposing to take more money out of their budgets. 
Dowd is talking about the governor's transportation funding proposal, which includes a gas tax increase. This is exactly the kind of thing that, that would cause uh, the kind of slowdown that we've seen since the November forecast. Uh, I'll remind folks that you know we had a $1.2 billion surplus in the November forecast. Now they're projecting $900 million in the February forecast. That's obviously due to Minnesota's economy slowing down, and um, it's, it's a direct result of the huge tax increases that Democrats put in place uh, a couple of years ago. Governor Dayton, on the other hand, cautious about tax cuts. Any reduction in taxes is ongoing. And in fact, it, it increases year, each year and it increases significantly in the next biennium. The, kind of the fiscal consequence uh, in revenue reduction in the following biennium and then the following biennium is really enormous. And, and that's why you know, we need to be very cautious. The, 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 the folks who say, well, you know, this is going to generate more revenue than it costs, just uh, haven't faced the reality of what happened to the federal government when they provided massive tax cuts back in the early 80s and threw us into these massive deficits. They hadn't looked at what happened in Minnesota when there were tax cuts in 2000, 2001, did not stimulate additional economic growth, put us on a fiscal precipice, and then with the Great Recession, we fell over the cliff. We're not going to sacrifice the fiscal integrity of the state on, on tax giveaways or excessive spending. New funding for roads and bridges remains up in the air as the governor made his supplemental budget proposal. House Speaker Kurt Dowd. The governor said in November in the forecast the gas tax was dead. Today he's back with the full gas tax in a supplemental budget. You know, I, I don't know if he forgot what he said a few months ago that the gas tax was dead, uh, but really the, the, uh, uh, the environment has not changed. Minnesotans really need to get some of their money back in their pockets. Governor Dayton responds, Republicans. They want to shift at least $500 million of biennium from the general fund over to the uh, transportation fund, and then they want to get $2 billion in tax cuts. I mean, that blows even these budgets, uh, the forecasts, uh, you know, totally into deficit. I, I challenge them to give me a real honest budget on, on all counts. As you can see, Scott, there are a lot of the same sticking points as there were last legislative session. So we'll have to see how this all falls out in the remaining weeks of the 2016 session. Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. 
last night we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd. Wait, but there were only four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. <sighs> and we're fireflies. Yeah, we are. Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before. And we invented glow in the dark. Yeah, we invented it. And we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. So come check us out. Check us out. And bring your kid all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah, and I'm super claustrophobic. Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you and discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. See you later. Yeah, see you soon. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. We're just more than halfway through the Minnesota Twins spring training schedule, which also means we're just two more weeks away from the opening day of the regular season. There's been a lot of heated competition in Fort Myers for many members of the Twins. The team's radio voice, Corey Provis, is spending the entire month of March in Florida with the team, so he has an insider's perspective on what's happening with the club. He sat down with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm this week for an exclusive chat on Minnesota Matters. Well, Corey, what are your general impressions up to this point? I guess a little past the midway point of the spring training Grapefruit League schedule. I think, Mike, some of the the big questions that we were wondering about when camp began uh, are starting to work themselves out a little bit. Uh, Trevor May was in the running early on to be a number 5 starter, but he's now going to be at the back of the bullpen where he finished last year. And I think that's kind of a a good scenario for him as he brought an element, Mike, to – to this bullpen a year ago that they didn't have. He brought a power arm. He brought strikeout potential to a bullpen that, that didn't have a lot of that. So I think that was something that, that I've taken away so far. But from an offensive standpoint, it's hard not to like what, what I've seen from Byung-Ho Park and the adjustment he's made. Now, it is spring training, so let's kind of remember that. But he is really acclimating himself well to uh, this game right now at this level. And more than that, he's really fitting in well and blending in well with his teammates inside the clubhouse. In fact, let, let's talk about him for a moment, Corey. I heard you guys talking with Joe Mauer during one of your broadcasts earlier, I guess, last week or so, and talking about that first base situation with Maurer, with Park, with Quinton, with Vargas, and whoever else might show up there on a given day. Uh, how does that all shake out, do you think, as regular season rolls around? Well, Mike, I think that Joe is going to be the first baseman more times than not. That That's not going to change. But I, I think when he does need a day, then, then Byung-Ho Park will be the guy that's going to be out there at first base defensively. And we've seen him just a few times, haven't seen him a ton out there at first. He's looked okay. Now, Carlos Quinton is not on the roster, but it's hard to to miss what he's done so far down here. Uh, Mike, offensively, defensively, he's moved around a little bit. And uh, he's making a case right now to be at least in the conversation to have a bench spot. Oswaldo Arce, I felt, had one to lose. And, and his numbers haven't been great down here so far in the Grapefruit League. Guys like Quinton, Mastriani, Ryan Sweeney to an extent. I'm not going to discount Kenny Vargas either because he's a switch hitter. But uh, some of the non-roster players especially have really made compelling cases so far down here. And you think the starting five is pretty well set now from the mound side of things? 
Not set uh, with the number five. I, I think in no particular order, the, the first four are, are, I feel pretty good about with Irvin Santana, Kyle Gibson, Phil Hughes. And based on what Tyler Duffy did in September last year, he's put himself uh, in the rotation to at least start the year. Now, the number five, I, I think it, it boy, it's going to boil down eventually to, to two players. I think it's going to be Tommy Malone and then Ricky Nolasco. Now, Malone has thrown the ball really well down here. He had a start uh, last week in St. Louis, or I should say in Jupiter against St. Louis, against a really good Cardinals team, and threw four scoreless innings, two hits. Uh, and that, that did not hurt his cause, not to mention he's a lefty, and the Twins don't have another lefty in the rotation right now. So I, I think that maybe Malone has a leg up over Nolasco uh, uh, right now, but I think it's going to come down to those two guys. Jose Barrio still in camp, but I, I think he's going to begin the year AAA. I wanted to ask you, too, because the record's pretty good. They've played winning baseball, and I know there are many times where it doesn't matter in spring. I mean, you'll play a tie, you'll stop in the eighth inning if everyone's out of arms, but is there some value to setting an attitude through Paul Molitor that they want to play winning baseball even in Florida here in March? Yeah, Joe Madden said this a while back, and uh, Danny and I, in fact, we've talked about this on the air a few times. I think if you leave spring training, Mike, at around 500, you're in a pretty good spot uh, from a wins and losses standpoint. If you play, say, 30 games and you go 20 and 10, you know, maybe you, you think you've got everything solved. You have a perfect roster and no questions, you're good to go. And that's maybe not a good thing to start the year. Conversely, if you're 10 and 20, you know, maybe you have more problems than you felt you had when camp began. So I think if you finish around 500, you've won some games, yeah, you're going to lose some. You know, for for example, it's not uncommon uh, when the team will leave Fort Myers and travel north to, say, Sarasota, they're not going to bring their A club. And conversely, the the home team is going to play their their top guys. You're you're probably going to lose that game. It may be rather lopsided, so you are going to lose some games down here. But if you can be about 500, it's not a bad thing, I think, when you break camp. What's the difference, too, from coming off, as as you know, these last four years prior to last spring where it was 90-plus losses, and then now this spring? Do you Can you taste a different mindset with this group? I think there's just genuine optimism about the team, and last year's season certainly did not hurt, but the wave of young talent, Mike, that, that we have been hearing about and, and kind of promoting in recent years, well, we're seeing that talent arrive and making an impact. And we finally got to see Buxton last year. We finally got to see Sano. And I think the next wave, and Max Kepler there at the end as well, Eddie Rosario, can't discount what he did last year as well. But I think the next wave is going to be more pitching-oriented, maybe not so much, at least initially, from a starting standpoint, outside of Jose Barrio. So I think it's going to be up at some point this year. But some power arms are coming, whether it's Nick Birdie or J.T. Shagwa, Mason Melitakis, who's coming off Tommy John, maybe not yet. But Jake Reed, I, I think he could make uh, he can make uh, a debut at some point this summer. The power arms, the next wave of young talent is more pitching-oriented. I think that's the next wave we'll see at some point in 2016. Well, we'll look forward to seeing you at Target Field after the uh, the first uh, week of the season when you're on the road, and uh, we can't wait for the year to start, Corey. Thanks for Always joining us. Always great to catch up, Mike. Best to you, pal. All right, sounds good. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Who might you save? Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, and son. Learn fast, F-A-S-T, the sudden signs of a stroke, and you could save your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach. F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911, F-A-S-T, face, arm, speech, time. That's F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, 
T, time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather. So learn FAST, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on because you never know who might save you. Your wife, your colleague, teammate, mother. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The Hennepin Theater Trust Spotlight on Education program is in full swing and participating Minnesota high school students are gearing up for the big spotlight showcase at the State Theater this summer. I recently spoke with Minnesota's own Laura Osnes, star of Broadway and concert stages throughout the country, about the program. The Spotlight Education Program honors students and high school musical theater around the state of Minnesota. There are now over 80 schools involved, and every year in the spring, uh, the thing this year is June 12th and 13th, there's a gigantic showcase at the end of the year where all of the students come together and put on a big showcase at the State Theater uh, downtown in Minneapolis, and it's a huge event where all the students are honored for their amazing work in theater, and these high schools are recognized for putting on wonderful shows. And the whole emphasis this year is on education especially. Hennepin Theater Trust really wants to highlight the fact that these students are getting master classes with professionals in the business and learning valuable skills, you know, such as confidence and um, teamwork, cooperation, coordination, uh, leadership, um, you know, stage skills, all those types of things. Singing, yes, in addition to singing, dancing, and acting. And it also recognizes the technical aspects of theater and what goes on behind the scenes and recognizes um, people who are leading in those areas as well. So it's really a full circle thing in the arts and all of the skills that the arts really do develop in these young minds and young bodies. So just to make sure that I understand, we do have people who are professionals who are coming into the schools and helping sort of give these kids education as it relates to musicals and life in general. Is that what it is? Absolutely. There are a bunch of professional theater people working in the business in Minneapolis that are coming to work with the kids throughout the year, teaching workshops, doing master classes. I came in and I taught a master class actually last night with about 50 students. Um, we were doing some dance workshops yesterday and they got a chance to have a great Q&A and ask some questions about the business and about my experience. And um, it's a really awesome opportunity. The kids left I mean, beaming and jumping up and down as they were exiting into the parking lot. And um, I love seeing that. I mean, I love seeing these kids get inspired by working with professionals in the business and people, you know, kind of giving them the truth about, about the business. And their, their young minds and young hearts are just starting to develop a passion for it. And to be able to assist the next generation in their love of theater and their support of of, of the arts in general, whether they're performing, whether they're buying tickets to see shows, whether they're working from the administrative side or teaching theater or, you know, choir, you know, doing choir or, you know, being involved in, you know, behind the scenes technical stuff, lighting design, stage management. It's, you know, the Spotlight Education Program really encompasses all aspects of it. And it's, it's neat for me to be able to kind of give back in that way and inspire these kids who are developing a love for theater, for sure. And Laura, how did you come to be involved in the program? I actually participated.
participated in the Spotlight program. When I was a freshman in high school, um, I went to Egan High School, and our production of Fiddler on the Roof was being honored with the Spotlight program. And we got to perform in a big showcase at the State Theater, and at the time I did it, there were 12 schools involved, and now there are over 80 schools across the state of Minnesota. And um, I loved it. I remember the experience being life-changing for me. We worked with John Command, who was an amazing uh, choreographer and director at the time, and we did a few group group numbers with everybody, with all of these students from schools across the state. And I remember um, it being so special with my cast, especially, um, and then also getting to meet so many other students who loved what I loved and did the same thing that I did and wanted to pursue theater the way that I did. And then getting to perform on the state theater stage, it was magical. You know, at that time, I had only performed at my high school. And, um, you know, getting getting to perform on that really professional stage just made me feel so special. And the classes that we got with professionals were really impactful. I remember it being just such a neat experience. And now to get to be on the other side of that and give back to this next generation is just completely rewarding. I love seeing seeing the kids um, just so inspired and so eager to learn. It's great. I'm guessing that getting involved with professional theater in this day and age is somewhat difficult. I imagine it's always been somewhat difficult. Is that <laughs> is that something that you address with the students? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people want our advice and ask what it takes to be a professional in the business. And, uh, you know, what I always tell people is that no two stories are the same. There's not a simple five-step plan you can follow to find success. Um, I know people that, you know, went to Juilliard and can't get a job. I was kind of the opposite. I only went to college for a year, and then I ended up just working. I got offered a job that I actually left school for and then continued to just audition and, and book jobs. And now I feel like I've gotten most of my training on the job, so to speak. I've learned through experience and from watching people around me and um, you know, having good instincts and all that. But I definitely grew up taking voice lessons and taking dance lessons. Um, but I, so training is one thing, but also kind of being in the right place at the right time, following your heart. It sounds so cliche, um, but I, I feel like so much of this business, that is kind of what it's about and having the right door open and being resilient, knowing that rejection is going to come and you are going to have to face hardships, but that that's part of the job. You have to know that, you know, auditioning is, 80% of the job and then, you know, the 20% where you do get to perform is so worth it. That that's the thing is that I love it so much and I'm so grateful to get to do what I love that it it makes the hard times absolutely worth it because it's worth working for. Thanks to Laura Osnes for taking the time to chat with me about the Spotlight on Education program. Tickets for the Spotlight showcase are on sale now. That's going to do it for this week. Tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.